You're listening to the Roundtable Podcast, Episode 70. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm J. Daniel Sawyer. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've tuned in to the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we bring writers onto the show to pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest hosts. And then we dig into it, exploring what works and brainstorming what doesn't, ultimately transforming the raw idea into literary gold. gold. Yes, the ongoing journey of the round table. Uh, Dan, this is this is fabulous. It, it is a rare thing indeed to have a guest host come and sit beside me, uh, at least virtually speaking, in the co-host chair. And I just got to say, I am so thrilled and delighted to have you as my wingman for this episode, sir. Thank you. Well, I'm I'm pleased to be here. And let me say, you've sprung for some gorgeously comfortable virtual chairs. Well, so you know, I'm happy to hang out here all day, smoke a cigar, you know. That absolutely. The, 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 the wet bar is stocked. Feel free to avail yourself. We, we're, we're, we, we pride ourselves on our, on our virtual comfort here at the round table. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, let, let's push ourselves out of that comfort zone and, and bring back our guest hosts uh, so we can roll into the awesomeness that is the round table, shall we? Let's do it. Awesome. Very good. Dear friends, returning from <laughs> easily one of the the most unpredictable and delightful uh, 20 minutes with episodes of last week. Uh, We are only too pleased and delighted to welcome back to the big chairs here at the round table, Janet and Chris Morris, Janet, Chris, I, I, first of all, much gratitude and appreciation for you guys making the time for us. And second, I am so pumped to workshop a story with you. Thank you for coming back. Oh, thank you. I'm so honored to be here. It's honorable to be here once, but to be on, asked to come back that's truly wonderful and we really appreciate it uh, I, I think this is a win-win on both totally sides agree. <laughs> awesome well now it has been two months since uh you were on the show uh and yet i i have the distinct impression that you your hands have not been idle uh and that 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 things have been unfolding can you can you catch our listeners up on on what's happening in the world of janet and chris morris these days well, the most exciting thing I think that's happening because it's new for us is the Sacred Band audiobook is doing really well, and it is kind of adding its glory to the Sacred Band literary series, which is now seven volumes are available as um, ebooks and four pieces as audiobooks. So we're really excited about that. Uh, do you want to talk about? Second band. And Chris is now doing I the Sun as an audio book, which is our book about the Hittite king, which is in first person, which is it's an interesting thing to try to do an audio book in first person. So, Chris, you're taking on the role of a divine king. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, divine. I'm thinking about that term. Um, it's it's a wonderful story, but Chris gets really bossy when he's doing that. I was going to ask because, you know, Chris, as a musician, you're no stranger to surrendering yourself to to the vibe of whatever it is that you're doing. Are, are you finding that the, that the king, this this character is, is uh, following you out of the sound booth? Here's the difference. In, a, in music, what draws me to it is that it's my better person. The person I'm becoming gets to surface and develop 
in the musical context, but in the fictional context, quite the other side of the coin <laughs> appears. And it's, it's, it's a little shocking in the, in the psycho-cathartic sense. You know, you, we, we all have these qualities in us, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and you're given and then, words and, and given the opportunity to indulge them for a oh few hours. God, yes. And so <laughs> it can carry over into one's immediate life. <laughs> My wife will attest to the same thing. Yeah, uh, you can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just... I, uh, Dave Dave recently did an audio book for me and I and it was a surfer character and I'm just having visions of him walking around the house calling his wife dude <laughs> <laughs> was, dude did become a, a standard uh, a pronoun of address for me for, for many weeks after reading that story so, so we so we've got Sacred Band of Stepsons audiobook out there. Uh, I, the Sun is in production. Janet, you're also working on the, the Rhesus of Thrace story. Is that correct? I'm working, yes, on my Rhesus of Thrace novel. And Rhesus of Thrace was a, a character in the Iliad. It's a wonderful story. It's really deep. Um, it's very heroic. He uh, was a hunter killer turned healer. And after him... A hero cult sprang up called Heroes Equitans, the riding hero. And that is the basis of the St. George and the Dragon story. Oh, wow. So I... it's, it's really, it's in us, you know, and culturally it's come down to us. But I'm trying to make it real. And when you make a, a Greek hero cult guy real, there's a lot of mysticism to it. And there's a lot of things that happen. It's just, it's a wonderful book. It's it's going to be a challenge. I haven't had as challenging a book since two things. One, I the Sun, which was the biography of Superliam Safadi. And if you want to know what a real hero was like, we've got that guy's own words in the text. We used every possible word that we could that he had said. Primary um, sources. Awesome. Primary sources. And the other one was the Sacred Band. Um, the beginning of the Sacred Band novel takes place on the battlefield at Chironia in 338 BCE. Um, history says that all 300 of the Sacred Band of Thieves were massacred there that day, where they're, they're back to the river, by Alexander's forces. And when we found the mass grave where all those skeletons were, 46 skeletons were missing. And if you know who these guys were and understand their historical connection to one another and the oaths that they took, 46 of those guys didn't cut and run. So the sacred band story is the story of Tempest and his crack squadron going in the night before and making a deal with Theagenes, who was the commander of the, the Theban forces there, that they would take these 46 away with them and they would help these guys fight until everybody else was dead. Um, and Theagenes, being a sane commander, taking a look at what was out there, seeing how outnumbered they were and what was going on, agrees. And so we take them. 
through the dimensional gate that's always been something we've used in the sacred band, the cloud conveyances, and nothing new. To, if you know the series, we didn't have to add anything. Sure, and, and mythology, and mythology. And mythology, so we, we take them there, but the fates are really mad. <laughs> and that's so never fate, a good thing. Never a good thing. So not only the fates, but the patron goddess of the um, Theban sacred band, Harmonia, follows them to sanctuary and I got Lynn's permission and we do this whole major novel in sanctuary tying up a bunch of old threads but also I now have 46 of the sacred band of thieves with my guys I've got 46 new guys and I'm having a ball <laughs> that's fabulous that's outstanding so so uh, uh, sacred band is out uh, do you have a, a target date for I the sun I the Sun, it should the upload should be com- oh as an audio book. No, yeah. it's when it gets done because he's so picky. He did Sacred Band twice, talked about <laughs> it. The the artist the artist temperament. It's, yeah. you, you just can't get around that. What do you think? <laughs> June, June, June. Awesome. And uh, uh, far be it for me to to ask the writer to project when she might be done with the the Rhesus of of Thrace Tale. But do do you, do you have a target? Um, hopefully this time next year, the end of the year. Outstanding. Well, I have no doubt you guys will be back many times between now and then. You can give us updates. You're very kind. You're Thank very you. kind. <laughs> awesome. Well, let me turn the mic over to Dan just real quick. Dan, I, I know uh, your hands have not been idle either, uh, and you've got some awesomeness coming out. Uh, regale our listeners. What's coming up for you, sir? Um, about a year and a half ago, I heard uh, a lecture by Juan Enriquez, who's an economist and a, uh, the head of the Bioteconomy uh, Venture Capital Fund and Craig Venture's business partner. And as part of the Q&A, he was asked, what is the most novel application of all the technologies that are currently coming online in the biotech and computing fields from your point of view? And he said, well, if you combine some of the experimental work in um, spaceship drives with the work at MIT on mapping and writing neuro patterns and memories yeah. and the, um, the work in uh, bioinformatics and storing information in uh, DNA chains and some of the more interesting work in regenerative medicine and cloning, and you combine them in the right way, you come up with a very novel method for transporting very complex information very long distances. Oh, damn. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And uh, the the audience took a second, and they all realized he was talking about space travel, where you die at one end and are brought back at the other. And I thought, <laughs> oh, well, that's too good a concept to let go. So my book, The Resurrection Junket, will be out in paperback and ebook by the time this episode airs. Cool. And um, it's uh, it's twisted and wonderful and visiony and uncomfortable and all sorts of fun so all the things that we've come to expect it. from dan sawyer literary contributions sounds fascinating excerpt 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 yeah oh yeah you got an excerpt I'll, I'll, uh, I, i'll post one up on my blog and send it to you dave so you can put it on the uh, podcast uh, in the show notes outstanding that sounds like a plan that's fascinating and wow! It, <laughs> yeah, that's that's our Dan. He's he's always going where no man has gone before, or woman, as the case may be. Uh, anything else, Dan? 
Um, yeah, there'll be a lot. I've been quiet for the last couple of years because I've had a lot of, um, a lot of stuff going on, learning, learning things about business the hard way and mm -hmm. moving house across state lines, but I'm back in the writing chair and I've got three new books at least coming out next year. And, uh, the podcast is coming back. So you'll be hearing a lot more from me. Outstanding. And between now and then you, you've been an audio producer for a bit. Have you not? Yeah, I did. I did uh, Gail Carriger's um, first foray into science fiction. We did a full cast audio of her book, Crud Rat, which will be on the market probably February, March sometime. You'll be able to get it from Amazon, Audible, audiobooks.com, and wherever else fashionable audiobooks are sold. And those of us that backed the Kickstarter, of course, will get an advanced copy. Yeah, those of you that backed the Kickstarter, you've already got it. There's a couple <laughs> more short stories I owe you, which will be out way before this episode airs. Outstanding. Uh, yeah, it's an audio only release too, so I'm pretty happy about that. Absolutely. And and dear friends, I can tell you uh, uh it's a beautiful beautiful piece and a very cool story. So, all right. Well, Dan, Janet, Chris, I will make sure all of that stuff gets in the liner notes so that there will be uh, an immortal record of of this slice of time uh, uh forever perpetuated in the infinite mirror that is the internet. Uh, but for now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to pause for just a moment and give some, give some promotional time and consideration to another awesome podcast or, or ebook or, or symposium, who knows? Uh, but we will be promoting some goodness here. And when we come back, I would love to workshop a story with all of you. What do you say? Oh yeah. <laughs> Sounds yeah. great. I'm I think, I think it's a plan. It's going to happen. Dear friends, don't you go anywhere. We will be right back. The Terran Empire is dead. Long live the Empire. Commander Jared Mertz, the bastard son of the Emperor, and his half-sister, Princess Kelsey, barely speak to one another. To their dismay, their father seizes an opportunity to change that and sends them on a dangerous quest to explore the fallen Empire. Separated from home by an impassable gulf and struggling to redefine their relationship, they find themselves thrust into a vicious war. Unless they work together to stop the Empire's deadly legacy, billions face a horrific fate. Empire of Bones, written by Terry Mixon, now available at Amazon.com. Welcome back, dear friends, to the to the meat and potatoes and the dessert and the aperitif, all rolled into one. That's just how we do things here at the Roundtable, the Story Workshop. And as you well know, the Story Workshop does not happen. The, the whole podcast completely falls apart without a bold and courageous, a creative and courageous guest writer putting forth his or her story for consideration. And dear friends, our guest writer for this episode of the Roundtable is an avid reader and, like most of us, a chronic procrastinator. Uh, he bides his time producing and voicing podcasts for MythBehaving.com, City News Net, and the Dark Justice Podcast. He has taken a turn at the Roundtable 
twice, which has been awesome. Uh, and he's written a nifty short story titled Foothold for the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences by Pip Ballantyne and T. Morris. And another tale uh, about a detective's run-in with a bunch of Celtic gods in 1950s Los Angeles in Dirty Magic, L.A., uh, and and ultimately, he plans to run for the presidency. Now, one of those factoids is absolutely false or terrifying. I'll let you decide which. Well, one we'll just have right. to see how well we can derail his future chances at the presidency, or or thrust him firmly into the the <laughs> rarefied stratosphere. Uh, he and his wife are raising three lovely daughters in the central Virginian Piedmont, and he is presently completing the sequel to the aforementioned story. When not otherwise engaged, he lurks on Facebook, Twitter, and occasionally at his own site, Paul. KLS.com, which pretty much gives away the whole introduction thing. Dear friends, please welcome to the writer's chair here at the round table, Paul K. Ellis. Paul, dude, yes, the crowd goes wild. Yes, absolutely. With thunderous applause. Hi, Paul. Hi. <laughs> Paul, dude, it is never easy to put your baby up for scrutiny, especially among this august personage. Uh, so I, I, I must say, respect, gratitude, and appreciation for you doing so, sir. Thank you so much much oh this is going to be a blast i know uh, i will have to come out of it and, and bandage myself but it'll be great <laughs> and, and it'll be recorded so you can play it over <laughs> and over and over again and if i don't my children i believe will. that's called masochism isn't it <laughs> <laughs> or programming one of the two one uh, of the two <laughs> well now paul let, let's just dive into this i am i am keen and eager uh, uh to get into the workshop aspect of things uh so so we're going to turn the mic over to you, sir, and, and give us your pitch. Give us the the title, the the genre, the format. Is it a short story, a novel, a series of novels? Uh, give us the hook line, the themes. Introduce us to the world and the characters therein. Give us some tent poles of the story arc, and and brother, we will totally take it from there. I'm I'm getting out of the way. The mic is all yours, sir. You all right. The name of the novel is The Hierarchy of Dominance. It's a science fiction story. A galactic assassin must choose between saving her estranged father and saving her empire from a ravenous horde out of the dark of space. This is a story about perseverance in the face of betrayal and the price of redemption. Our tale is set in the universe of the Terran sphere of influence during the tyranny of the dominion of the ore. It's our universe in about 250 years and one left turn from now. Six megacorporations run the government through the use of the Quorum, a quasi-popularly elected group, the vestigial remains of the world government. Among the many factions, two are preeminent, the Unity Movement, that's pushing for admission into the Dominion as a vassal race, and the Way of Manifest Destiny, a sub-Rosa organization intent on resisting the ore covertly. Our characters, our main protagonist is Tori Devereaux. She's a mid to late 20s field operative for military intelligence who specializes in xenopsychology, Xeno profiling and decommissioning of select targets. She had her father committed to a minimum security facility seven years ago, she believes, in order to save his life, and they haven't spoken since. Despite that, she is codependent with her father, providing the voice of reason when he became manic and feels guilt for having him committed. I need to give her some better agency. I don't know what she needs or wants, quite frankly. Our other protagonist is Thomas Wyatt Swift. A once well-respected experimental physicist, he worked for the corporations and specialized in practical applications of the unified field theory. Unfortunately, he never recovered from the loss of his wife, Kelly Ann Swift, some 20 years prior. Convinced that the ship she was commanding, the SSC Cole, was not destroyed, only lost, 
He ruined his reputation and lost all credibility. After a very public meltdown where he blamed a massive corporate conspiracy preventing him from finding his wife, he was institutionalized on the recommendation of his daughter. He is flat and needs some more depth. I want him to be more a cold and calculated military man than a stereotypical mad scientist. Our primary antagonist is Sir Edmund Churchwell. He is the head of the unity movement and the speaker for the quorum. A career politician, Churchwell believes that changing the status of the sphere from subjugated province to vassal state is in the best interest of humanity. That relinquishing freedoms we cannot enjoy under the rule of the ore is worth the possibility of becoming citizens of the Dominion. This opinion is backed by the rising power of the quorum and undeterred by facts to the contrary. While I love saying Sir Edmund Churchwell, he isn't coming off as a big presence. Uh, do we make him more than just a token bad guy? The big bad are the ore. Think of the gray aliens often described in contact literature. The ore behave in much the same way as the Roman Empire did. They conquer and rule with an iron fist through local authorities. They have a hunger for all types of technology. Hundreds of years ago, humanity spread out among the stars in all directions, eventually coalescing into the Terran sphere of influence and a renegade freeport styling itself the Centauran Republic of Proxima. At that time, humanity collided with a race known as the Hive Mind. The conflict was brutal resulting in the believed genocide of the hive mind and the arrival of the ore. The conflict alerted them to new technologies. They attacked the Republic homeworld and after a bloody three-day battle prevailed. The quorum capitulated immediately, causing enmity between the Republic and the sphere that remains to the present. The ore imposed an iron-fisted rule, banning certain research and prescribing humanity's reach to only their present boundaries no further. Attempts to explore beyond these boundaries resulted in broken ships with all hands lost. Dissenters were publicly and gruesomely executed. There were no exceptions. At the outset of the occupation, ore centers were bombed. The ore retaliated by invoking the tenfold rule, resulting in humanity's population being redu reduced by about 20%. In Act 1, Tori sees her father's name come across her desk and investigates. She discovers the order for his execution and seizure of all of his research was signed by Churchwell. She falls back into some old habits, despite knowing that it will cost her her career, and orders a delay in the order's execution. She copies her father's uh, address on Proxima, fires off an encrypted tight beam message telling him to vanish, and commandeers a fast packet boat to the Republic. Upon arrival, she discovers the decommissioning squad is only an hour, perhaps two, behind her. According to the address, her father lives at Hephaestus, an abandoned orbital shipyard. Not knowing what to expect, she docks and finds chaos, many people rushing about and moving equipment everywhere. Upon locating her father, she would demand to know what he's gotten, him, gotten himself into now. Her father explains that his very public disgrace was a ruse to remove him from the public eye and off the ore's radar. The corporation set him up at Proxima because the ore rarely returned there and never stayed for more than a day. They task him with building a functioning rift drive so humanity can break the quarantine and build alliances with races beyond the reach of the ore. He has succeeded in theory and plans on taking the prototype ship with him. Churchwell discovered the unauthorized research and tattled to the ore. Since Swift was already deemed unstable, any accidents, say the whole destruction of the yard, would be written off to his unbalanced mental state. That being the case, Tori and Swift load the crew from the research station aboard and take the ship. In Act 2, the Republic hails them immediately once they leave dock and says get out of our space or we'll blast you out, so they make a rift jump inside a gravity well against all the prevailing theories. They don't wind up where they planned. Instead, they're orbiting a dead planet. Swift investigates. Tori is becoming more concerned. Swift is brilliant but erratic and showing signs of slipping into mania. Upon confronting him, she finds he has news. At the Proxima Yard, he had access to the sensor logs from every part of the sphere. Over the past 20 years, over 150 sensor sightings had been made of the SSC coal, 
all accompanied by a bizarre energy signature. That same signature, the prototype ship engine, the, the energy signature is the one that the prototype ship's engines emits. Toria is about to relieve him of command when she realizes the ship is full of people loyal to him and they can't really go where they want to anyway. Loyal crew member number one shows that the navigation problem is that they took into account the gravity wells of celestial bodies along the route. As it turns out, rift drive is more a straight line type of thing. Armed with this knowledge, they prepare to jump to the nexus of the weird sightings when a hive mind vessel slides out from behind the planet. The hive mind were not destroyed, as previously believed, and prepared to destroy the prototype. They hesitate, trying to determine what race it belongs to. Tori postulates the hive mind tracks by energy signature, not by profile. Don't expect human reactions from non-human species. The ship looks human, but the hive mind keeps hailing them as those who have walked before. Eventually, they fire on the prototype, injuring Swift. Tori and crew respond with massive force. The hive mind vessel is hauled and dead drifts. The crew scans it, documents it, and collects samples. They then travel to the Nexus, where they find the SSC coal in a state of transtemporal flux. Using only audio, Kellyanne Swift warns them that the future is grim and humanity must resist the ore or perish. Says she can't hold the SSC coal in the present here and now much longer. Swift has the engine's energy signature tuned to the coals, and the flux stabilizes long enough for them to offload the crew before the ship disappears. In a big reveal, Mom's apparent time lapse was six months. She didn't realize she had been gone for 24 years, and now her daughter is older than she is. The prototype ship returns to Proxima, broadcasting the, all the information they have gathered directly into the main data core. Ore vessels arrive, only to scan the data core and immediately depart. And now I need a non-cliffhanger ending. I think I finished 30 seconds early. <laughs> How long is this book supposed to be? Uh, I was thinking 80 to 100,000 words. It's an epic. That's a 200,000-word novel. It's an epic format. I don't know that you've got, you know, you've got a lot of detail. This happened to me the last time. Um, I don't understand the characters yet. The only thing that I heard that was anything like a rationale for this kind of adventure would be the humanity must resist the or or perish line. If that's the, the fulcrum around which all this swings and if it's true, or if if a percentage of them believe that it's true, then it's a revolutionary group, um, not just her. Uh, then at least that gives me some idea um, where to start with the character. Uh, Swift is her father, is that correct? Yes. Okay. So there's no love interest here. There's no hate interest here, except there's the discomfort and that she has um, remorse is her situation with her father. Um, female characters are, don't be offended, guys, more complex than males um, <laughs> in a lot of ways to draw. Um, and I don't like fem females in guy suits where they're just exactly like guys because they don't think like males, if you, um, we used to raise horses, and let me tell you, mares don't think at all like stallions. Um, <laughs> and it's the same with us, and, um, with humans. Women are very territorial, are very territoriality minded. So if her, she's come to this conclusion that humanity must resist the or or perish, that might justify the rest of it because it's a turf battle. Um, and everything else in here seems like it seems like a turf battle, is it? 
Yes, it's very much a turf battle. Okay, so if it's a turf battle and she's on the edge of it, um, I think your difficulty is going to be to make some of these, you know, commandeers this ship and um, fires on that one and th these actions that are in, in normal government ease are very complicated and require lots of concurrence and sign-off and different layers of approval. To make those seem believable in a simple enough way, you've already got a lot of complication here. Um, the Terran sphere of influence is another thing that I grabbed as, as this went by. If the Terran sphere of influence is one that they are committed to expanding as well as resisting the ore, then that can get us to um, the rift device quickly and efficiently. Um, you know, when Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet the and all of his plays, somebody comes out at the beginning of the play and stands there and recites two to four lines um, that tell you the whole story. Can you give me two to four lines that will tell me the whole story? I cannot, sadly, give you two to four <laughs> lines. Well, you, you need to. Um, well, if you're pitching a movie, you know. But, you know, and I do that with my but, writers, too. And I do it for a reason, because you can get lost in the detail when you're thinking um, grandly. This is a space opera kind of thing. Um, and in, in the nicest possible terms, you know, I mean, I like space opera. I've written it. Um, the, you need bad guys to believe in. And the church, well, is a human with a, who just seems to have the typical, I want to control what's, what I can reach to, uh, typical, you know, political. That's okay, but that leaves him colorless. And I think you mentioned that you wanted to do more with him. The rift jump could complicate things in an interesting way temporally if you know you I mean you've already mentioned that she's she and her mother have swapped ages because of the rift jump how much temporal slip is there after they take the rift jump i mean how many years have passed before they get back to seeing whether or not the situation that they were all ready to try to fight has evolved in any way Ooh, good point yeah that is a good point um, but I don't think you can do what you're talking about doing without a relativistic quirk in it. And maybe that's the ending is that when they get back, <laughs> everything has changed. <laughs> the, the whole everything that they've been through has been OBE. Do you know that government term overtaken by events? Right. Uh, everything else, you know, th that the game is completely won. Or lost, take your pick if you want to do a trilogy, but one by the people who had stayed behind and fought for those 25 <laughs> or 30 years. And although what they did was wonderful, the results have to be dealt with on a personal scale. I mean, she can't become savior of the universe because the universe saved itself. I, If it were me, I'd figure out how much of this do I really need and what is the primary story that I'm trying to tell and What's the growth path for the girl, Tony, and for her father, Swift? Do they uh, bury the hatchet? I mean, maybe we steal from 
Mr. Sawyer and say, in the meantime, there have been enough genetic changes. I mean, I use sentient spaceships and, and um, Dream Dancer. There's been enough changes in technology that this sense of territory having to be bounded by fences, well, that's a very Earth thought. What if the places that you can go aren't necessarily needing to be contiguous? In other words, if, if you... It, they don't. They don't want. They want to try to fence in the Earth people. Now the Earth people have this rift thing, and the rift is taking them different places. You said than you thought, and they may find lots of territory that's nowhere near anybody else, because that's if you're looking at that kind of travel. If these guys have a rift technology, basically their problem is solved, but they don't know it yet because they're still thinking astronomically. You know, well, I can't go beyond, beyond here. But if the rift takes them to places that aren't astronomically contiguous um, and does it fairly dependently, when they've got home, they may find that um, this has made the ore unable to compete. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe the ore uh, are, are a very linear race, and for whatever reason, they can't go into this rift space that's actually toxic to them or poisonous. So inadvertently through, through Swift's pursuit of his, his delusion about his, his dead wife, uh, uh, he's, he's unlocked the kryptonite for this, this unbeatable force. I like that. Then that the, the, um, the ore can't go anywhere using rift technology. And although they love technology, this one is deadly to them. So the situation solves itself. And then, but that makes this a real novel because what matters is the development of the characters right? and how they handle the situations rather than something that's dependent on a a whole bunch of, I'm not sure we need all this. I, I was taking notes and my whole piece of paper is covered. <laughs> um, the SSC coal signature, what's that? When the SSC coal, uh, I'm going to operate on the assumption of, of the, the readings, the 150 readings that Swift found in the, the database, and with those readings, at the same time that they were finding the, that ship's uh, black box signal, they were also getting some weird field readings. And so he was try Swift made the connection between this, the signature and, and those weird field readings and used that to develop the drive to try to find kind of having the answer and working backwards from there to, to develop the drive to try and find his wife. Okay. First of all, I salute you for writing classic science fiction. That's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's terrific. I mean, where has it gone and will it ever come back? Yes, here you are with it. Um, <laughs> as a storyteller, I'm drawn to features of a story which represent opportunities to spin, change, or twist. And estranged relationships are that in in writ large. So um, when the father comes into it, I would suggest that he has already uh, joined the or, <laughs> um, or sees it from an entirely new perspective, which adds a, a real twist to they're on opposite sides then. to the struggle. Uh, I also like the or. Because as a military, you said, kind of like Romans, uh, 
there's a lot to be said for Romans, especially ones like Marcus Aurelius, yeah. who, who had a really good head on his shoulders and, and studied ancient philosophy. Seneca. But there are always turncoats in any organization with a clear and uh, militaristic ideology uh, who are ready to evolve to a point where they understand something of the dynamic of the conquered that enables them to govern better, uh, that enables the conquering race to govern better. I'm not sure that I have heard yet what is so valuable about the Terran culture that the or sphere of influence that the or want it. Yeah, why why are why are the why are the or keeping humanity in? Well, my my thought with this, and I didn't have time to go delve into it <laughs> in, in in the eight minute spiel, was yeah. that the or are basically barbarians. They yeah. they they are they are stone uh, uh, they're stone age savages with plasma rifles. They know how to pull the trigger. They don't know much else. So yeah. they're kind of feeling their way around, uh, uh-huh. which is why uh, they are kind of backing away from the the shipyards at at Proxima because. Um, that's where they almost got defeated. It was a three-day battle. They won, but they almost got defeated there. So they 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 kind of stay away. It's it's, uh, whoa, it's whoa, 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 whoa. ISIS. Uh, wait, wait. Um, they would have hot washed that and figured out what they did wrong and what they could. You know, hot wash after a mission that everybody go, comes in together that was action oriented, and you you all sit down and you figure out what you did wrong and what you did right and what you could have done better and where you're weak and you try to shore that up. So I would assume if they're barbarians, there's nothing they'd rather do <laughs> than refight that one. Yeah, good um, the point. The problem is you can never refight the same battle. You never get the same battle twice. But if I like Chris's, I like the fact that they're what you say are barbarians, but I say um, target focused, um, target fixated people. You know, that's a training thing. Um, if they're the limited spatially thing, not that I'm trying to rewrite your story, really works for me. But what if in the very end, a rapprochement is made with the ore because the ore can't use the rift. They're physical. There's something about them physically. There's no way they can't survive rift travel. So it's a 180 flip. The Terran sphere of influence or whoever has got the rift now has the upper hand and the ore wants to make a deal. Oh, that's very good. That's I a like nice that twist lot. because in the past you had mentioned that the the Terrans had eradicated or thought they'd eradicated this hive mind race, right? Uh, uh, and and if you know if they have this poisonous technology that they could, I don't know, effectively inject somehow into the the Oren culture, they could recreate the sins of the past if they chose to. And that could create a very intriguing dynamic of, of, you know, do we define ourselves by what we destroy as opposed to what we create? Maybe that's what his strange dad has been working on with the hive mind guys. Well, I need to know where this central theater of action. I I don't know where it is either. It's so complicated. It can whisk you far away very quickly, which is, that's what this riffs thing is. Then... But time passes what you left. How do we establish where the confrontation, the yeah. denouement, when? is going to take place? Hmm. I mean, it's very hard. One thing I found doing our passage is it's really difficult to fight a conventional conventional missions when the people giving the orders are in a different time than you are. Is that the case, Paul? 
Well, my initial thought, and I'm really beginning to rethink it now, <laughs> but my initial thought with this was uh, when the Swift had to tune the prototype ships, and uh, I've got that in brackets because I need to come up with a snappy name, the prototype ships, uh, engines, energy signature to match that of the coals, the, and how did the coal wind up in, uh, in that temporal flux to begin with? Um, and I had introduced another race, and then blah, and that got really complicated, so I dropped that mess completely. But uh, I think the the idea of him having to tune the engines to that, the reason that the the coal is out of temporal sync, and the prototype ship isn't, is is the difference in matching that particular signature up. Does that make any sense at all? Well, if they that- can do that. If they can do that, no, it doesn't, but that's not the point. Um, <laughs> let's just say that you can fudge that uh, because it doesn't matter. This isn't, we're not actually building this thing. You know, we're not asking it to, um, I mean, if you want to try and do something buildable, then that's a different, but we're not going to build this. The technology is way far out and we don't know, you know, whether it's a combination of digital and biotech or whatever comes after digital or what they can do, <laughs> but the issue that that's still bothering me is, okay, even if we get rid of a couple of these races that don't matter, unless you just want them for color, um, you know, if you've got two or three people fighting, the people who aren't fighting make alliances, usually with both sides, um, so that whoever wins, they'll be on that side. I mean, that's, you know, um, you see it in the Middle East all the time. Um, these people don't seem to be fighting for any reason except expansions and limits on expansions. It, you know, it's not ideological. It's not you smell funny. Um, it's not um, anything else. So if really all we're dealing with is an issue of, a race, and I like it, the Romans, the Roman race, the Or race, they're, if they're primitive in their mission definition, and, you know, I mean, they may be really smart Or, but they stay at home and weave rugs. Um, these Or are mission fixated, target fixated, and they go out to preserve the boundaries and keep these people in. You can't keep somebody in once they've got any form of hyper travel. Okay, because where they're going might not. If you think of, and I did this sponge face in, in um, Dream Dancer, I really think it's right. If you think of the universe, and it's kind of the way it's looking now, quantum mechanically, um, as a natural sea sponge, and you look at your rift travel, as you can go through any of the holes to any and come out any of the other holes, but you can't punch a new hole. Um, okay. then the distances from one place to another aren't what they look like on the surface. Does that make any sense to you? Sure, that makes great sense. Yeah, okay. it, it, it well, would take you forever to go two feet because the hole that you slip into winds through the whole sponge, basically. That's right, absolutely. And that's what we did. In, and that actually, now that we have um, microscopic um, space-time foam, Usually if there's a micro, there's a meta. It's probably going to turn out that there's a meta equivalent of the space-time foam, which is going to look a whole lot. It'll look kind of like the, if you pour coffee and you make it real frothy, you know what that looks like? Sure. And that's pretty much similar to the foam. So if you have that, 
And your basic plot comes down to the Orwana pen, the Terence sphere of influence, linearly. But space-time is not linear. And this mastery of a more complex form of motivating through space-time gives these guys the ability to just basically say, fine, or we won't go outside those boundaries. Now we're going to go and plunder the whole rest of the universe and you stay where you are. Sure. Uh, okay. So then if the or realize there's no out for them, then they can't, you could have a wonderful attempt by them to use this kind of travel and, you know, come out inside out or whatever, um, you know, not be able to do it. There's something in their physiology that can't sustain life in the, uh, in the transit phase. So you've got the or can't get to any of these places they will have to do what Romans always do, which is hire mercenaries, which is hire another race to do their fighting for them, which is make a deal with these guys. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then the thing you have that's, that's the wild card is this tuning the, the signature of one ship to match another. Um, I don't know what, what, what the equivalent to that would be, but, well, you know... Let me let me interject for just a moment. Uh, first, I want to turn the, the mic over to Dan because Dan and sci-fi is is like peanut butter and jelly, uh, uh, and I know he's he's got ideas. Uh, uh, and 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 also uh, uh, we've I, I think we've really kind of dug into this the the, the world and the context and, and given Paul some some good insights into how you can refine the ore. Um, Dan, give give us your give us your impressions and your ideas and your insights, and then maybe we can turn our attention to to Tori and Swift and their story, or or these story, because we've already started sort of sort of morphing that, introducing a resistance, which I think is a very cool idea. Uh, maybe we can pursue some of that as we move forward. But Dan, for now, uh, what what are your thoughts? What are your impressions? Uh, and what are you what are your recommendations as we go forward? Uh, Janet hit most of the macro stuff. Uh that I had on my notes and with far greater style and erudition than I have any hope of doing. <laughs> but uh, that on the macro level, um, the one thing that kept tugging at me is um, how expensive space travel is. Um, maintaining a sphere of influence ain't cheap and doing space war is similarly expensive. Having a good solid rationale and by good and solid i don't mean rational because people go to war for irrational animal reasons as often as they do for rational ones but having a good solid rationale that suffuses the thinking of the characters that drives the war would be a real help to drive the story yeah. um can i can first... i can send you i can send you via dave uh the uh the Rand Corporation, or not the Rand Corporation, but the Rand Institute, just published a really fascinating history of um, wars that were um, wars that have been fought in the last three hundred years for illegitimate reasons, and the awesome. things that that the leaders go through um, to protect their confirmation bias that drives countries to war when the war is not necessary. That might be useful to you. I can send that along if you want. That would be incredibly helpful. Yes, um, that was the uh, those were the macro things that jumped out at me. The micro things, um, 
a couple of ideas. Um, one of them is, and I've lost track of the name, but but your your bad guy who's uh, who's a little bit thin right now. Churchwell. Yeah, the Roman thing got me thinking about uh, Cicero. Is another yeah. one of Cicero is another wonderful archetype uh, for the Roman for the Roman man because Cicero was brilliant and he had wonderful convictions and he was a great political philosopher and an amazing orator. But he, when his, his personal moral fiber was never up to the, um, the, uh, standards that his words set. And so, and that's one of the reasons that he got offed in the revolution the way he did because, or well, he for, he committed suicide under duress because he was um, always flipping sides because his political maneuvering was yep. completely at odds with his prof- with his professions, and it's a really good way to draw a very sympathetic noble bad guy if that's the way you're wanting to go. Cicero might be someone to look for or look at. Yeah, just yeah. Well, we need a Robert Downey here. Someone, <laughs> someone in whom resides the ability to see it from beginning to end. Yes. Who will be marked and who cares like crazy about something. And you it's with tech and characterization, there's always a need to strike a balance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, at the outset, you said something about one of the characters you were describing was he's not he hasn't got as much uh, gravitas as you'd like. You know, you have to work on that kind of thing. And what I'm what I want to know is where you connect to this. What what fascinates you about working out this puzzle? Well, I'll tell you. Um, my oldest daughter went off to school two year two two and a half years ago. And I was depressed for eight months. And I felt, and it's, it sounds incredibly petty now, but I felt completely estranged from everything that she was doing. And when, we, when she got back uh, for Christmas break that first year, we had a very hard time reconnecting. And that's what started the, the impetus for these two characters. Oh, is, good. Is, uh, so I'm kind of drawing a little bit on personal um, because, you know, she's like, Dad, you've lost your mind, you know. And I'm like, no, no, I haven't lost my mind. You're not an adult yet. She's like, yes, I am. And we, you know, went around that round robin for a while. <laughs> well, that's good because oh, that can only bring. That's terrific. You know, that's what you want. It didn't mm-hmm. show enough. Um, there's, she doesn't have a love interest. She has this remorse, uh, guilt situation with her father which might have a lot of anger in it i mean that's fun uh but i'm looking mm-hmm. for some something as simple as two families alike in dignity you know um that was the beginning of romeo mm-hmm. and juliet i thought that uh, sounded familiar <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for what's the story the core of the story and we don't know either we don't if, if you let the characters drive the story then you have a right not to know where it's going to go because they will make their decisions. But if you define what's going to happen to the characters, that's going to limit a lot of this big picture stuff is going to be just special effects stuff that, okay, fine. You know, you can put it in there and the guys will like it. Um, (laughs) But it's not the story. 
uh, the story on the I agree with Dan that on the meta the story is between um, what this Romanesque if you like um, or Roman style spatially limited group of people who have been so aggressive maybe they're so aggressive because other races have the ability to travel um, if you like interdimensionally but you know certainly um, in a nonlinear fashion and they don't so and we don't realize that until we realize that that's that's the hook that's the card that's what we've got but you don't have a, a, a smart diplomat character yeah we don't have a retief right yeah, 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 you don't have a big picture guy. You yeah, don't have some right. a guy, and you don't have a guy with the juice to make anything happen. You, you don't have a guy that you can go to and say, well, Mr. Secretary. <laughs> um, <laughs> here's our situation. Here's the situation. What do you want to do? Who could pull this wonderful rabbit out of the hat? Um, but then again, by the time they get back, you're going to set this thing up. And you're going to set it up as if you, the characters don't know that when they arrive back, half the people they were fighting with are dead um, of old age. And whatever else has happened has happened, and they're going to go out and come back, and the world will have been changed. Or they bring the peace that allows, you know, they bring that missing bit of knowledge or power. And this is power, this ability to travel non um, non-linearly through time it's, it's, and space. It's and like space the hero time. cycle, uh, the hero sure. going into, into hell, dying and coming back with, with the secret wisdom. I was going to say, you've uh, dovetailing with what Janet is talking about, you've told us the plot, but not the story. And the difference exactly. is the, the, plots tell it, the plot tells us more or less what the stakes are, but they don't, it doesn't tell us why we should care. The story is what are the stakes and why should we care? So how can yeah. we how can we amplify that? How can we what, what can we tune for Paul? Uh, just some suggestions or well, what ifs. And so Paul, you the angst that you are experiencing. I sense that the situation with your daughter is not resolved. Oh, so you're, no. <laughs> you're living you're living in that that continuum that um, moment of irresolution, of misunderstanding, of, of lots of risk of losing something for only because of the ravages and of, of age <laughs> and uh, the, the inexperience of youth, all those wonderfully classic yeah. uh, misunderstandings. So, I don't know, I'm... If Call this, me a wuss. That's the kind of story yeah, I like. I like too. I'm, I'm missing that piece of it. I haven't even got there. And, but and this, the tech is detail. It's it's window dressing. It's kind of kind of cool. But if it doesn't strike the emotional core of what's going on, if it doesn't solve this really aggravating imbalance, um, I think you're going to not find the ending that you want, which is, you said is, is a cliffhanger or is not a cliffhanger. Depending on whether there's going to be more books, but what Chris is absolutely right. If the, I mean, the character has to have something special about her. She can't just be another guy in a woman's suit. You know, she can't be, um, 
a neutral, if it's a girl who has become a zealot, zealots are wonderful in war, they're wonderful tools, but when the war is over, they're useless. Um, the humanity shot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Humanities must resist the or or perish canon. If she has accepted this, thinks it's the only that the only solution is military. God knows I know enough of them. And he is a someone older who's been through a lot of things, who understands, you know, people who really work in science understand the politics in science. And the the risks of having your work perverted. And, um, I mean, you can have the best project in the world, and if some other organization has more money in a competing project that won't work as well, and they don't want to be embarrassed, yours will get killed. Um, and we'll put our money into the one that doesn't work, because at least nobody's career will be ruined. <laughs> I mean, what does she want? You know, does she want a rapprochement with her father? Does he want one with her? Does she think it's impossible, and he think it's necessary? But I've been making notes as I go along, and and, and what I what I come up with here is that uh, Tori is indeed uh, part of the the Sub Rosa uh, organization of Manifest Destiny and Swift. I like the idea of him if he doesn't if he isn't overly overtly allied with the or at least leaning towards that, and that will that that will create a lot of tension uh, there as well. But then it doesn't give him any reason to run. So I'm I. Well, but he's hunting down the mystery. I mean, he's there, there's the mystery of, of the ghost signatures of his wife's ship that that you know has has driven him. I, I can see you know his politics, uh, and and Dan referenced this very specifically with with uh, with Cicero. You know his 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 politics is one thing; his heart is another. Uh, right. And the more that those are those two are in conflict, that just makes for for a much more dynamic and and conflicted character. Uh, throw throw an estranged daughter into the mix, uh, and you've got a very complex uh, uh, psychological and and motivational uh, matrix to work with with Swift. So yeah, maybe uh, he's been um, redirecting funding meant to do something else into this per project, which is really personal, or. Um, Maybe he's told them that the project, um, which will result in him finding the wife, is really for another purpose. Maybe she figures that out. Maybe she's appalled and she thinks her father's a crook. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of ways to play this. That's intriguing. Uh, have her have her find it, this out rather than the kill order, and, right. and let her. You know, I'm going to take care of this myself before before it gets out of hand. I, I because that is something and, Swift would do. <laughs> By the way, the name of I just looked it up. The name of that uh, of that new paper at the Rand Corporation is "Blinders, Blunders, and Wars: What America and China Can Learn from Past Foreign Policy Disasters." Yeah, awesome. Yeah. And it's free. That. It's free on the Rand Corporation website. Well, friends, let me interject here. This 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 would normally be the point of the conversation where I go grab a few bottles of wine, uh, lay out some cigars and some cheese and crackers, and settle in for a nice long evening of discourse. Uh, sadly, from a podcast perspective, we're running out of time. Uh, so so here's here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to take one turn around the table, uh, Janet, Chris, Dan, and myself, and and try and summarize. Uh, uh, 
some 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 bon mots, some 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 literary uh, uh, breadcrumbs to send Paul down to to explore ways <laughs> when he to 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 refine and and tighten the 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 vibe of of the story that he's evolved. Uh, so so one one last quick turn around the table, Janet. We'll start with you. Uh, uh, final words for Paul uh, as he moves forward with his story. Hey, if I were you, I'd have Tony be a zealot for this. Tori? Tori be a zealot for this humanity must resist the or or perish. Um, that the father is tricked the government into funding an effort that they think will do one thing, but really will just allow him to find mom. Mom. Churchwell is the purse strings. Um, and the guy that this guy, uh, that uh, Swift has to go through for to get funding, the or knew about but can't use this kind of rift jump traffic and when they all these things are revealed one at a time uh swift goes to church well and says look we can make a deal with the or we can be their boots on the ground places they can't go in exchange for them getting out of our faces and she is horrified. She feels that her father has betrayed everything they were all supposed to believe in and nearly kills him. And the end of the story is he brings her along the road to maturity and they learn that force can't solve everything. That's the best I can do. <laughs> That's it. I think it's a good start, a solid foundation. Definitely, definitely a, a path to follow. Chris, what about you, sir? I would pit the hive mind against the ore in some manner or fashion uh, because one is a break on modernity and the other has, is the extreme of political correctness. Uh, and it's always fun. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, to punch it out. Meanwhile, the the human drama and the technical drama are played out by and mirrored in in the dysfunction of the family. Um, and I can't wait to find out what happens. <laughs> Excellent, Dan. Oh, what about you, cool. sir? Um, take that passion and the deep well of frustration and upset that you've got with your daughter and pour it into this story yeah, and that's it. let that overwhelm everything else at least till you get your first draft done you can always fix plot problems it's very hard to fix passion problems yep that's really the best advice because if he brings the characters to life the story will sort itself yeah yep yep excellent advice Excellent advice for myself, Paul. Uh, I'm I'm actually kind of going to take my cue. I knew as we gathered uh, Chris and Janet and Dan together that there would be a, a wealth of cultural, historical, and mythological uh, archetypes and 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 structures to draw upon. And and it occurred to me um, that you know one of the things that you had mentioned was that the or are very Roman. Dan invoked Cicero. Uh, Janet and Chris both invoked you know the barbarians, the Romans, those aspects. I'm wondering if it sounds like, you know, your impetus, as has been observed, was this this frust- this this relationship with your daughter and and using that as as a, a core. And I think that as has been 
said is is a very strong impulse to wrap that up you've 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 set the stage you've got the players now maybe a little bit of research maybe uh looking into cicero and using him as a template using actual historical uh events and personalities to to personify or or flesh out or or provide depth to not only the characters like like churchwell but also to the politics of what's going on around. I know, I know. In an earlier iteration, the 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 renegade republic was was Texas in your mind, uh, and and working that route is is uh, the way to. Uh, I think looking at those existing cultural structures, historically, even contempor- contemporarily, sure, that's a word, uh, <laughs> and and. Uh, overlaying the template of their stories and their desires and their conflicts over this 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 marvelous rich set piece that you've evolved and seeing how that gels together because what you're doing then is it's it's not just set pieces and sketches you're dealing with hearts and souls and and deep deep resonant desires of cultures and individuals and and that can might serve to to infuse that that structure and that pull and that flow uh, to to wrap around that that core of emotion that you're working with. Uh, just 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 some thoughts to work with. It's just a few that you've picked up during the course of this of this hour of awesomeness uh, that we've undergone. Uh, now now Paul, here's here's the standing offer here at the roundtable. Um, take this and and Dan, do you have the disclaimer handy? I, in fact, do. Let me pull it up. Now that we've gone through all of this, we, 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 we probably... <laughs> now, 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 yeah, now that we've sort of kicked the shit out of your story and, 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 and left you bruised and bloodied on the battlefield, it's a good time to remind you that this is your story we're talking about. And just about everything that we've all said could be utterly useless or complete bullshit. And you should feel free to disregard any of it as you see fit. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, so that said, write this. However, you want to write it, write it. Uh, get it out there, publish it. Whether it's a PDF on your website, uh, uh, you know, self-publish through Amazon. Get a, get a deal with 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 Random Penguin. Who knows? Uh, uh, Take it. I'll go one step farther. Take it to market because if it was worth your time to write it, someone will want to pay to read it. There you go. Absolutely. But when that happens, you come back, you let us know, and we will fly you out to Rift Space and we will knight you. <laughs> we, we will make you a space knight of the Round Table podcast. That's the carrot, Paul. Can you get behind that, man? I will be Rom Space Knight. Rom Space Knight. <laughs> Paul Rom. <laughs> Awesome. Very cool. Well, Paul, uh, uh, thank you so much for, for, for the boldness and the courage and the creativity that you brought uh, to this episode of The Roundtable. Thank you for bringing your story. We really appreciate it, man. Oh, this was uh, incredibly enlightening. And having uh, four such knowledgeable individuals tear into this has uh, been a great learning experience for me. <laughs> Inevitably. Yeah. Inevitably. Awesome. Well, and Janet and Chris Morris, uh, uh, this has, as it always has been in the past, and I look forward to many times in the future, been a delight, uh, uh, very insightful, and and very 
ennobling, I think, in terms of you, the perspectives that you brought uh, and the insights that you applied to Paul's story. And we're very grateful. Thank you both so much. It's fascinating. It was an interesting one to do. I really enjoyed it. Was it was a pleasure. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we. I don't think we took anything away no. from what he's got. He's got. He's got the right stuff. And now that we understand better what he's planning to do, um, I think it'll work fine. Yeah, I agree. I agree, and and Paul Paul is a is a skilled tale weaver. Uh, I'm sure he'll take what gold there is lying about and weave it into the tale. Oh, dude, it's all gold. It's all <laughs> it's all gold, baby. Dan Sawyer, my first guest host ever on Roundtable Podcast Number One, and and now my co-host, my good friend. Thank you so much. This. This has been a delight, and I would like to do it again if you're if you're free and available sometime. I'm down whenever. Yeah. I always love coming back. Thank you so much for asking me, Matt. Outstanding. Outstanding. Absolutely. Absolutely. And dear friends, as always, thank you. Uh, you closed the circuit for us. Without you, we're, we're, we're just a bunch of people sitting around drinking wine, eating cheese and crackers, and talking story. Hopefully... Hopefully, hell, I know that you got some gold, literary gold from this discussion, uh, uh, and and I hope it served you as much as it served Paul and the rest of us. Uh, if you're feeling the love, feel free to, to, to ride that current of love all the way to iTunes and uh, drop us up a review up there. We'd love to hear what you have to say uh, about the podcast, and it always uh, helps to, to affirm that we are indeed out there and that you're out there listening. Uh, we do have a message board now on the roundtable. If you go to our website, www.roundtablepodcast.com and click on the forum link. It'll take you right there. Uh, and we can continue the discussion and keep working Paul's story on into the internet of cyberspace. Whatever that is. So, <laughs> all right. Well, there it is, friends. We've done it again. Uh, uh, and and the fabulous thing about the roundtable is, as as awesome as this has been, this, this this wellspring of creative froth. Next week, it starts all over again. More awesome guest hosts bringing writerly enlightenment, wisdom, and laughter to our ears. More courageous guest writers bringing awesome stories to the table. More roundtable goodness to be had for all. All. Uh, but that's wow that's like seven days man that's a long time dan what do you think our listeners yes. should be doing between now and seven days from now um well they should be doing things that stimulate them for example going to www.jdsawyer.net and checking out some of the fine stories and podcasts over there <laughs> or going out and checking out the Thieves World or the wonderful historical fiction of Janet Morris and Chris Morris. And in other ways, keeping the old noodle nice and limber. Lim- limber and sharp, which is which is an unusual uh, uh, combination, but, but a sharp and limber noodle. <laughs> yeah, see, I'm, I'm seeing... <laughs> I'm he- oh my mind! Oh, I'm hearing a Viagra ad in there right now. <laughs> Sounds like Limburger to me. <laughs> it's a, a Limburger. It's a very sharp cheese. Yes, uh, dear friends. I will tell you as I always do. You find what you're looking for, and apparently you were looking for this. <laughs> you have found it. Whatever this was, uh, I, I hope it served you as well as it did us. But you do. You find what you're looking for. So look for the good stuff. Look for the bright, bright package at the back of the Christmas tree. Uh, uh, and uh, you will find it. You always do. Whatever you set your sights on, it's there. We will see you in seven days, dear friends. Until then, you guys stay cool, 
be frothy, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2014 by the Roundtable Podcast and released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable Podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.